Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Simon Drew, the author of The Poet and the Sage and host of the Walled Garden podcast. Simon is a poet, musician, philosopher, and a friend. He's a repeat guest on the show. I always enjoy connecting with Simon, and this conversation was no exception. Today's episode focuses primarily on the wisdom of parables. A parable is generally defined as a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. In the conversation, Simon and I discuss forgiveness and love, how to observe the past without regrets, the role of views and beliefs in shaping our world, how to navigate our inner critic, searching for wisdom, and much more. So please welcome the wise and gracious Simon Drew. Well, I guess to kick it off, Simon, I've got to ask you, what led you to agree to have a conversation about the wisdom of parables? Uh, okay, let me tell you what led me here. Curiosity, because I have <laughs> no idea <laughs> how to properly interp- interpret parables. I was supposed to be taking a class at university this semester called Jesus and the Gospels, but I decided to drop it in favor of keeping my other three classes um uh, on Old Testament foundations, Christian ethics, and New Testament Greek. Um, and so, there's that level where I still, you know, I'm not even studying this stuff at the moment, so <laughs> I, I don't know. But nonetheless, um, there's something extremely captivating about parables, and they're, they're kind of this, uh, sp- the, the, this food for the soul. And the, the inclination, or the... the, the the thing that kind of tugs at me when it comes to thinking about parables is that they are kind of these living, breathing uh, pieces of, of text and stories that change as you change, or they unveil themselves, reveal themselves to you as you understand yourself on a, on a deeper level or move through that, or perhaps ascend that spiritual mountain, you might say. And so... Um, I'm interested, and 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 I I thought, hey, if you're looking to talk about parables, um, you probably know something that I don't. So let's talk about it and see where we go. <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure if there's any truth in that, but uh, but I'm a fan of of parables, and I've I've got a few that that I can share, and I I know you've got some um, some that you'll share that'll be helpful to the listeners. But I often well, why think, did, why of, did you ask me to have this conversation? I guess one, it's um, I enjoy connecting with you, but two, it's it, there's probably not a ton of podcast episodes out there, maybe dedicated to the wisdom of of parables, but there is something to these things that are, you know, very short, concise, you know, thirty second, um, ancient tale that sometimes really 
is just as valuable as, as reading an eight-hour book, per se, maybe even more so. Um, mm. But I think of Socrates, Jesus, as you mentioned, Epictetus, the list goes on of, of these people that just didn't write anything down. <laughs> you know, and, and obviously they didn't teach maybe all of these figures strictly in parables, but this spoken word, you think of some of these, how long have they, they've been around, you know, just thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point there, it's interesting how a lot of these are a part of the oral tradition. And what I love about that idea, this very brief snippet of wisdom that, as you say, can almost you know, take you as much time to understand as a full book. It's this compacted wisdom. And it comes from this place, yeah, that this this oral tradition, this dialectic tradition of philosophy, of 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 discovering wisdom through our conversations. And and, and it's it's as if the the per- person who is truly spiritually or philosophically mature, they can see something that other people can't necessarily yet see. And because of the value of that message and because you want people to go on the adventure, like something that I've often said about poetry, and this is what, uh, uh, what's his name? Joseph Campbell said as well. The great thing about poetry is that it gives the reader an adventure to go on where, uh, they're taken along on this path that is, uh, it will transform as they transform. It will open up to them. And and so, because of the value of these spiritual or philosophical messages, they're kind of hidden within this little tiny capsule that must be penetrated only by those who have that kind of spiritual knowledge and can see the relation of those metaphors to the spiritual landscape. Um, I'm just thinking out loud here, but that that's how it seems to me. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I do, and I think there's you know different different types of of parables i guess i guess maybe some of the traditional parables when you give it a google search they're kind of straightforward and, and clear but then you get some of these things and, and and maybe there's different levels to the um depth and and understanding of some but then you might think of like a zen koan of being a bit of a of a riddle, something that maybe someone sits with for for a long time before they they get a particular mm-hmm. insight. Um, the few parables that I have are, as you can imagine, m- maybe more on the on the practical side of their their straightforwardness, but things that have that have stuck with stuck with me. Just this universal truth you know everyone knows Mm. there's some truth there how about you do you have a favorite parable that you might want to um kick it off with hmm uh i think that the the one that keeps on coming to my mind is the parable of the prodigal son and you mentioned that when you were emailing me about this, I believe. And I think that the reason it keeps on coming up to me is um, in many ways, I have kind of lived out that story uh, being the person who, you know, is brought up in a religious tradition 
goes outside of the bounds of that religious tradition, walks beyond the gates, goes on my own adventures, uh, believes that I can make it in the world without this kind of um, profound wisdom passed on through the ages, and then, uh, you know, in many ways squanders those gifts and then returns back within the fold. And although I haven't returned to the church of my upbringing, um, I still recognize a, a part of my adventure within that parable of being welcomed back into that spiritual insight, perhaps, uh, into that, into that, um, yeah, into that narrative. It's, it's very strange. So to me, that's been on the top of my mind for a long time. And there's, there's this beautiful 20 minute piece of music by Mark, uh, Mac Wilberg, Mac Wahlberg. Oh gosh. He's, he's a composer for the Mormon church. Um, and it's called the prodigal and it's probably my favorite piece of music of all time. It's just the most profound wow. orchestral score and choral score and the lyrics. And, um, I will often listen, listen, listen to that, um, to be inspired to write poetry and things like that. So, yeah, I don't know. For me, I think if, if you're open to starting with the, the parable of the, the prodigal, it might be, might be fun. Sure. Um, I, to come back to that piece of music as a musician to say favorite of all time, those are pretty strong words. Could you say more of what is it about that, that piece of music that you would, you know, give it such high praise? Mm. Oh, what is it? Um, it takes you through a wild spectrum of emotions. <laughs> and I think that that's, um, what's so brilliant about a great piece of music is that it will, it will take your soul and put it in a bottle and shake the bottle, and <laughs> you know, pour it back out again. And you just, Oh my gosh, you know, uh, what a wild ride. And, um, that's what I find in this, in this piece of music. And, and uh, as I said, that the lyrics are just stunning. Um, it, yeah, it just really kind of shakes me every time I listen to it. Um, and just thinking of the brilliant mind that had to compose and put together this piece. Um, yeah, I highly encourage people go out and listen to it. Just called The Prodigal. It's part of Mac Wilberg's album called The Tree of Life. And there's some beautiful stuff on there as well. Um, but also the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, you know, regardless of whether or not I'm a part of the church, I will always advocate for that choir because they're quite stunning, mm -hmm. their work. Well, cool. We'll have to link that in the in the show notes for the for the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But I switched it up a bit on the uh, on the parables, so I have a I have a few shorter ones. But give me just a minute to um, pull up the uh, sure prodigal son, and I'll give the uh, the caveat of you know regardless of whether or not I feel connected to this parable, there's still yet. Uh, heaps to understand. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I'm not even close to understanding it, I don't think. Um, but it's it's right. fascinating and anyway. It is. And due to the length, I'll, I'll read it pretty quick. Um, and then sure. we can chat chat a bit about it. And uh, this might be an opportunity to talk about desire in the, the older brother and things mm. like that. Um, so, the parable of the prodigal son goes... There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Give me my share of the estate. 
so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So... Mm. A long, long parable, but definitely seems to be a lot of wisdom in there. What resonates with you? Yeah. Well, there's a few things that were sticking out there to me just now as you're reading this. And so I think that we're going to have to wrestle our way through some of these ideas because this is even I, I try to pay attention to how I feel, you know, when somebody's reading something like that. It's just, ah, oh, it's just, it's so enriching. Um, and I also try to think, you know, these stories, every single detail matters. Like, why was the one son out in the field? What's the symbolism of him being in the field and then coming? Yeah, it's like, there's so much there. Um, one thing, I'm going to throw an idea out here and see what you think of it. Now, one of the reasons why I love that Mac Wilberg uh, 
piece that he did of this parable is that he kind of, he, he does follow the the narrative of the the parable throughout the music but he actually adds little details my thoughts are that he's probably doing that to add to the story so that people can understand it better um, from his perspective. But one of the things that he says, it's really interesting. It's right at the very start. He says, the lyrics go, a certain man had two sons as every man has two wills to be made one. And that's always stuck with me for some reason, you know, because this is kind of, you'd probably agree. This is kind of like a, a classic, um, brother narrative of the bible right you got these two brothers one's going one way one's the other the adversarial brother narrative and um you think about what are these two wills to be made one you know obviously in christianity there's christ and satan you know perhaps the part of us that wants to be enlightened to be spiritually full to to achieve everything that we could in you know uh in terms of the goods of the soul. And then there's the part that is riotous and desirous, as you might say, you know, going outside, you know, uh, looking for that other life. But this is a story of bringing both of those wills together to be made one under the one house of the father. I don't know. What do you think? Am I, am I on any sort of right track there? Do you think? I don't think there's a, a wrong track or a right track when it, when it comes to, to these things. Um, Good, let's play with it then. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, well, one thing I think is curious is um, from a Stoicism perspective, it's hard to get away from it, I, I, I think, because it's mm. with any wisdom tradition, any particular story, much of life, there is a connection to, to some of these. Um, but I always think of this, the father... As, as modeling a bit of, of stoicism of, of what is within his control as a, as a parent and things like that. Um, I, I think that's interesting, but also the, the brother as well with the, the anger, the desire and, and things like that is, is very much, you know, the, the, the path to be concerned about. But um, I, I think many people take it as, as this idea of forgiveness is that we're always, um, you know, we're always forgiven. We're always welcome. Um, Pope Francis, you know, uh, five, six, well, it was probably a little over a decade now, but one of his first books as, as Pope was the name of God is mercy. This idea of just forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And I think even the parables, whether it's coming from a spiritual tradition, I feel like it, it connects on a secular level as well. If, if someone wants to think about it that way, how about, how about for you? Mm. No, I think you're right. Um, I, I think that there are certainly secular lessons to take away from this. I, I guess personally, I'm, I'm very, I, I'm, I'm always like really aware that I, I just don't understand as much as I should, you know, of these, of these. And, and, and I think that that's kind of the point is that you kind of, subordinate yourself to the might the power of such a, a parable and say okay well there's a there's a spiritual mountain that we you know perhaps if we're uh 
really trying to understand the Bible, there's a spiritual mountain that we're all climbing up. And perhaps the higher you, you get on that mountain, the, the more you, the, 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 this is the way that Jonathan Pajot puts it. It's so interesting. He really tries to get you to see how, um, you know, the kind of the garden of Eden sanctuary, God's garden at the peak of the mountain is this, is this kind of landscape of spirituality where, uh, at the bottom, you really can't see much, you know, but perhaps you're on these plains and there's, you know, there's these rivers that the source is at the peak of the mountain, that the water flows down the mountain and it gets murkier and murkier the, the farther down the mountain it gets. But then the higher up the mountain, the purer the water source and the farther out you can see until you get to the peak of that mountain and you can see all around you. And that's that spiritual peak of this mountain where you might come to a narrative like this or a, a parable like this and, and and you see clearly all around it in every detail because of the symbolic pieces that are coming together. And so uh for me with this with this parable, I mean, um I'm tr- I'm trying to think about how uh well, let me put it like this. If you look at it from the standpoint of a church, it's like, imagine you're somebody who grows up in a church and you do every single thing right. You're there every Sunday, you're doing activities throughout the week, you're praying daily, you're reading your scriptures, you're doing everything. Everything is right by the books. And so, you're kind of just in that fish pond. You know, you're swimming around with everybody else. Nothing is really... Um, there's no real celebration for you. It's like, you're here with us, great. But then a person leaves the church and then they come back and everybody's like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to see you again. I'm, and I've seen this before. I've seen this where everybody's so excited. Have you heard he's back at church? Have you heard this person's back? At and, and you think, what about the person who's been there that whole time? Is there, is there the temptation for them to be like, well, what about me? You know, what, you're not excited mm-hmm. that I'm... So, you can see on a practical level that this sort of thing would happen in real communities, but then I wonder, and I want to know what you think about this, I I wonder, you know, Alan Watts, he says something that's just popping into my mind, I feel I I should say, he says, if you're going to outwit the devil... You better not give him any prior notice that you're going to do so. It's it's this idea that um, as soon as you start playing that game of, uh, well, I'm going to achieve my higher self. It's like, nope, the rug gets pulled out from under you again because you're already stuck back in that. Now, I don't know how it relates particularly to this narrative, but there's, there's this idea of like what happens when we when we are able to pull a part of us that has being detached in a kind of um, unsavory way back into ourselves, into alignment under the house of the father, perhaps. What happens in that internal battle between the parts of you that were already on that track and the parts that you pulled back? Do do you see where I'm... I don't quite understand what I'm saying, but I'm trying to... (laughs) I'm trying to see if it leads anywhere no i i love it and it's an interesting thing as you talk about back under this idea of forgiveness and maybe you could put it under a category Mm. of unconditional love but 
maybe there's no reason to put unconditional in front of it. Maybe that's just love. But maybe there is no coming back under. You know, maybe you're you're always under. Whether you're mm. doing everything wrong, doing everything right, that love is there. And uh, speaking of, of symbolism and things like that, um, this idea of, um, of looking at an image, the Rembrandt painting of the prodigal son, and there are many paintings of, of this particular up. parable, but um, the theologian Henry Nouwen wrote an entire book on this particular parable just based on seeing, he kind of talks about um, going to see this painting in person and basically sitting there for hours upon hours. But this idea of the, the prodigal son coming back, just and you see it in the painting of just torn and broken, being embraced by the father. Hmm. That's, that's love. This, you know, it's, um, you know, love must probably have to be unconditional it's this idea of and you think of that as a as a parent i have um i hope that i could do something along those lines but i mean you you think of i have a daughter and a son hopefully regardless of of what they would do i would love to be that person that is so excited to to see them and embraces them you know, with both both arms and, and welcomes them. Um, hmm. But, uh, okay, but yeah, so I love that painting. What you're saying is, so, and, and I looked at that painting just quickly um, when you mentioned it, and I have seen that before, but I got goosebumps when I looked at it again, because it's, you're right, it's Take so... a look at the brother, the older brother in there, too. Is he the one up the back? Yeah, the one that kind of in just the has a... Uh, yeah, he has a bit of um yeah, he's supposed to be the figure all the way to the right. Just uh yeah, sta- standing oh, okay. there. Um okay. theoretically and not so happy about the the welcome back. Mm. A lot of what you're saying about forgiveness and love um really is sticking out with me and putting some pieces together perhaps. I mean, um if I go back to the analogy of church, something I've often thought is, you know, I, uh, <laughs> this is a psychological analysis of myself for everybody here, by the way, but that's part of the fun of it. Um, I've often thought recently that there's no problem with being a part of a community and contributing to that community, even if you have a theological dispute. So, for example, if I was to go back to the community of the Mormon church and, you know, spend time and contribute to that community. I feel like I don't have to agree with absolutely everything that they believe in, in order to still be there and to surround myself with people who are on that spiritual path. But nonetheless, there's a part of me that feels this, it's like a deep shame going back into a community. It's like, oh gosh, you know, here I am crawling back in, but I know that the people who are truly spiritually awake would welcome me with loving arms and nothing else, right? But then if you think about this from the perspective of our internal worlds, it's like 
when we're trying to overcome a bad habit, for example, some part of us has become riotous and, and is just pulling us down a very bad path. When we are somehow able to pull ourselves back together and to say, listen, I'm going to um, overcome this habit or I'm going, to, I'm going to stop this habit, there's a certain amount of shame and guilt that we still hang on to. Um, and there's that, stu- that, that residual feeling of like, how could you have done that? How could you have allowed yourself to go, you know, it's like, uh, 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 you know, <laughs> how could you? Um, but is the antidote to that nagging side of yourself that's perhaps still the best part of yourself because it's the part that has always wanted the best for you. It's being manifest as a jealous brother of that other part of you that, that is now being brought I know, yeah, to me, it seems like this bringing back under under or together. But is the antidote to that the love of the Father, like the true love and welcoming and forgiveness? It's like, I don't care what you've done in the past. You're always welcome to return to this place. Uh, and it seems like that could just be so powerful for healing um, when we have gone off the track multiple times, is to say, shame and guilt, absolutely destructive. You know, they don't do any good. What does good is love, forgiveness, welcoming. Do, do, I don't know. Do you think I'm on the right track here? What do you think? Uh, absolutely. One of my favorite quotes is that connects with this is from the Buddha. And and maybe that's a transition to a a parable that I have from him. But um, it's, you know, if your compassion doesn't include yourself, it's incomplete. But you could essentially exchange compassion for anything. If your forgiveness doesn't include yourself, it's incomplete. You know, what if we can Mm. play that role of, of the father, you know, to ourselves when we take a step off whatever path that that may be these things of of fear shame guilt type of stuff or you know some people call them illusions when you really dance with them you know they're not really there but um but yeah it's some easier said than done i guess as well (laughs) (laughs) um I was actually wondering, before we move on from this one, do you mind if I read you a poem that Please. was actually very much inspired by... I think I think it kind of um, speaks to that same sort of feeling within me of like going outside those walls and then realizing perhaps... You know, it's I, I, I really don't have any regrets at all about... Um, about the direction that my life has taken spiritually, I guess. Um, and so that's important to know before I read this, because this, this is merely an observation, not necessarily um, a, a feeling as though uh, I wish it had been a different path. But mm. I, I wrote these, these few pieces here um, that I, I think relate. Anyway, I thought you might appreciate it. So, yeah. The first part's called A Time. It was a time of milk and honey, and I squandered my share. It was a season of nuts and dates and figs, and yet I did not pick and I did not eat. 
It was the peak of the mountain, and I denied my communion with God. It was a time of music, but I did not hear. It was a time of deep rhythm, but I did not dance. It was a time of great freedom, and I was a slave. It was a time of many delights, and yet nothing could satisfy me. It was a good conversation, and yet I could not comprehend. The reservoirs were flowing over, yet I did not fill my cup, and I did not drink. The air was pure, but my lungs did not receive breath. The trees grew high, but I had not strength nor the courage to climb. The wild flowers grew, but I had not the heart to know them. The birds sang their songs, but I did not sing mine. Goodness covered the earth, and yet I did not participate in its creation. A flame was lit within my soul, but I had no thought to kindle it. And that's part one of that series, but I think that what that speaks to is this coming awake to the fact that there was such a spiritual richness that was being taught. Perhaps the teachers were not the greatest. Perhaps I was not in the right mind to hear it, but nonetheless you recognize how great and rich the spiritual gifts were and how rich the world was if I had had the ears to hear and the eyes to see. But now you're waking up to how rich it is and also to the remembrance of, oh, I could have had this all this time, even though you know that you couldn't have because this is where we are. But I don't know, that was just something that kind of came to me as this kind of reawakening of, oh, okay, the world is becoming reanimated. Um, mm. And I think that that's part of that kind of prodigal story. I don't know. I thought I'd share that, though. I love that. I'm glad that you shared it. Let me ask a question, because that may connect with, with some of the listeners. Like, maybe we can look back of our, our time getting an education. Maybe you look back at a particular relationship. And you mentioned in the beginning that, you know, there's not necessarily regret. It's, it's an observation. How do we yeah. observe, become aware without regret this, you know, I wish I would have done something differently. Any thoughts there? I'm sure you'll have um, thoughts much wiser than mine, but I'll offer no, something. I, I mean, no, I don't. Um, I, have, I have no thought, no thoughts at all. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Uh, that's not true. But um, I, I think, uh, okay, what do I think about this? How do we overcome this shame and guilt? Um Part of it, I think, is just recognizing that we cannot be anywhere but here and now. And uh, perhaps I'll find something um, actually from another thing from my own storehouse here. Um, yeah. There's a part towards the end of the poet and the sage where the poet is speaking to the villagers and and he says this. Uh, and remember this, that if a man knoweth not who he is, and what he is, and why he is, and how he is, and where he is, and when he is, then how can he be aligned? Is the answer not within your reach? For what is a man but everything? And who is a man but a spark of divinity floating through a sea of eternal knowledge? 
And how is a man but by and of the one? And where is a man but here? And when is a man but now? And why is a man but to sit and to see and to feel and to hear and to learn and to be what he is and to kindle his spark, even that he may know that he is free? I think I'm interested in this idea that we we are here we are now <laughs> that's it you know it's it's like you can't go back which by definition means that what the hell are you doing with all this shame and guilt and i still am overcome often by by those feelings but nonetheless recognize come back to this i'm here i'm now that's you know um that's the fact that's the reality and and it's kind of that idea of you know set your hands to the plow and go forward and don't look back um you know look back perhaps to learn from your memories to learn from your experiences but in the spiritual sense of moving forward uh, perhaps even up that mountain it's like keep on looking ahead like you, you may have missed a few things but in the remembrance of what you have missed, you have that opportunity to receive them again and to be reborn into that that world. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Because that, that's just the way it appears to me anyway. Well, I appreciate you reading that. I, I think that is so important when it comes to many things in life, like the here and now. But it's kind of a harsh truth yeah. when it when it comes to like say thinking about something that maybe you wish you would have done differently and i would chalk it up as we were talking a little bit before we uh, hit record about desire it's essentially wanting something to be different it's simply beyond our control if we if we think about you know, just practical wisdom or stoicism, things like that. But, um, you know, Nietzsche talks about amor fati, not wanting anything to be different, forward and back. It sounds very harsh when you read that. If someone is maybe thinking about some things in the rearview mirror, but then from a reality thing, everything in the rearview mirror is 100% out of our control. You know, yeah. it's not even something that when we think about this trichotomy of control, well, there are certain things we influence. Well, it's not that. It is 100% completely out of our control. But like you said, and I mean, in this beautiful poem, there is an awareness, there is an observation, and maybe kind of as Seneca talks about this, you know, it's like examining your day but from a second person type of thing, you know, you're not necessarily examining it really in there. It's just like a psychological observation, I, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And then a more fatty is fatty is so, so powerful for that. Love whatever comes your way, you know, uh, but love it here and love it now and appreciate the opportunity that you have to be transformed in that moment and to transform that moment, as, as Sharon LaBelle might say. But I think also it, it's it's funny, you know, within that poem that I read, it's 
perhaps there's an element of, okay, yeah, it was a time of milk and honey. But the only way I can understand that it was a time of milk and honey is because I can see that it is a time of milk and honey, that there is milk and honey everywhere. Um, <laughs> but, but I was not there. It was there and still is. But nonetheless, you know, going on, I, there's more to that poem that perhaps gets a little um, strange and prophetic, but it's like we're kind of at a point where the time and milk and honey uh, – We've sort of lived through it, and there's some dark clouds on the horizon, you know, and and we all see it. I mean, we all see the cracks that are forming in our cultures. We all see that we're at a really transformative time in history where... But still that milk and honey of the spiritual landscape is there for, for the taking. Um, but <laughs> something is coming to me right now because... Uh, I spoke with a, a friend of mine from Florida yesterday, a very interesting guy who is very spiritually mature and just a beautiful human being. He has he has the voice of a bear. It's very it's very funny when he when he answered the phone. I said, I I, I can't tell if you're about to kill me or give me the best hug I've ever received. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> he, he has that kind of a so low and growly, you know. But it's like yeah, he really cares. He really cares about people. But he said something to me. It was so true. He said. Just remember uh, how much of a joy it is to have the freedom that we currently have and that there's true, tangible pleasure and joy in remembering that and in sitting in that understanding of just how free we are. It's just a few days ago he was sending me this video of people over in China who are just, you know, locked in their apartment building, screaming out of their apartments, you know, just like birds in a cage, you know, and it's just like, oh, my gosh, there's so much darkness around. If you have a little bit of freedom in your life, uh, I guess politically, um, uh, it's, it's unbelievably fortunate and... We need to recognize how much of a time of milk and honey we're currently in, in the real, in the world, you know, um, mm. and that that isn't necessarily an inevitability. That's not a standard thing. And we need to take advantage of that. So I don't know, like it's, it's, there's the spiritual land of milk and honey, but there's also just look around you. What gifts do you have right now that you perhaps don't realize that you could be receiving true pleasure from just the realization? <laughs> We're so lucky and it might not always be like this. It, it's such an important point. I, I try to think about this in search of wisdom stuff you know, like around 75 episodes in of, of you know, what takeaways e- exist, which is difficult um, to think about for, for me for some reason. But one thing that comes up is how you, you see, how you take in the world, um, you know, these different perspectives. And I have a, a parable that might be one of my favorites that touches on this point. But when I think of, um, like if you think of a, a mother Teresa, for example, many other people walking the streets of India, the same conditions exist, but she sees the suffering. You know, if we think of our, our senses, she probably hears it. There's a, you know, she really 
takes it it in mm-hmm. and and maybe some people can do things like that like their senses are highly attuned and they can use that in a manipulative way and they think about you know things that are actually evil so it, it's kind of you need both if you think about the marcus aurelius like you know good character and acts for the common good or wisdom and love and obviously mother Teresa had that and was very young and um not very young but young within her particular profession and then basically going to her superiors and saying okay this is what i'm doing now i am in the streets for the rest of my life i am serving the poor you know seeing the big picture but also being able to see that it's okay if she just feeds one person and just smiles and is there for people one at a time where so often Mm. we think it has to be something grand and and something big. Um, But let me read this parable so we can get through uh, a couple for the listeners. And it's a tale of two villages is the name of it. A man who was traveling came upon a farmer working in his field and asked him what the people in the next village were like. The farmer asked, what were the people like in the last village you visited? The man responded, they were rude, unfriendly, dishonest people. You'll find the people in the next village are the same, said the farmer. Another man who was traveling to the same village came up to the same farmer somewhat later and asked him what the people in the next village were like. Again, the farmer asked, What were the people like in the last village you visited? The second man responded, they were kind, friendly, generous, great people. You'll find the people in the next village are the same, said the farmer. I think there is Hmm. so much wisdom in this idea of perspective. What, What are we expecting to see? What are our views and beliefs that we have running in the background that literally shape and influence what is before our eyes. Hmm. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, and I think not only the perspective side of things, but how you put yourself out into the world directly affects how people will respond to you. I was, I was speaking yesterday with somebody who spent 13 years traveling around the world with their backpack, and they spent about four of those years in India on a motorcycle going around. And she said, India is the kind of place where it can seem very chaotic, but if you go there willing to be in that kind of chaos and, and open to the experience and open to the people, like they will respond to you exactly like that. They will op- open their arms to you and welcome you. But if, if there's any kind of, oh, you know, rigidity in you um, around this kind of way of life, they will, respond likewise as well and it seems like that's exactly this sort of idea as well as we we need to think about how do we show up in the world because are we not going to attract that exact same sort of energy to us from the people around us it's yeah but perspective also just you know what you see is is what what you're gonna get it's um yeah i love that that's a beautiful little parable yeah yeah, it is uh, short and and straight 
and pretty straightforward on it. So yeah. um yeah, I definitely like that one. It's easy to easy to remember. Mm. What about this idea that you just mentioned of you know, how we show up influencing, you know, others or influencing our 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 world that we interact with. I was in a meeting this week um, with a bunch of people discussing uh, a potential direction that we're looking to take uh, the walled garden. And there's a person who I've been working with uh, lately who we've we've talked about who um, has spent a lot of time in these kinds of uh, corporate meetings, you know, with people who have real expertise and, you know, gathering people around towards a certain core vision and getting people ready to go. And one thing I admire about this person is that when they speak, you listen, because there's an energy about them that, that I'm here to, I'm here with an open heart, a good heart, open arms, but let's get things done. And so a person like that who has that experience with people and expects a certain level of professionalism and seriousness from the people around them because of that expectation that they have and the way that they hold themselves in a meeting, you cannot help but be brought into line almost and, and and not in a way that you feel as though you're being manipulated, but, Oh, okay. Somebody's serious here. Somebody's really ready to take this seriously and to to get this project going. So let's listen. Let's be our best selves and give our our hearts as well to this to this pro. And and I think that it 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 always um, it's like Seneca says. You know, if you give a person trust, you will inspire trust within that person. Like they will feel as though they want to live up to your expectations of them. I think that the way that we come come out in the world and, and show up uh, directly influences how people around us will gather in with us, how they will respond to us. Uh, in the same way that if I went into that meeting and said, hey, everybody, listen up, you know, here's what we're doing. Uh, I really don't care what you guys think, but, you know, <laughs> it's like... How's everybody going to react? They're going to be immediately on their back foot, you know. Oh, what? <laughs> you know. Um, so it just seems to me like we need to take very seriously um, the way that we approach our relationships and and what we look for in people as well, because I think that it's true. What you look for, you will not only see that in people, you'll see that, but you'll also inspire that within them, because no, nobody loves. <laughs> it's like, what do you love more? than somebody actually believing that you might be able to bring forth the best in yourself. If somebody believes that about you, you really want to live up to that expectation. Just like a kid <laughs> to a father or a kid to a mother. It's like, I want to impress you, you know, because you believe in me in that mm -hmm. certain way. Do you know what I mean? You've probably Definitely. seen this with your kids as well, right? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. Like these... Um I don't know what to call these type of things of uh I tend to put it in a category of like a world view or a perspective type of thing on um human nature but it's like that's a real important thing of like how 
what are humans like? If, if you think of, of Socrates, this idea of in 8 million other people have said the same thing, but no one knowingly does evil. That's a difficult thing that I think is in rubber meets the road type of thing. Everyday life, we tend to want to make a judgment on a case by case basis. We wanted it to be, but that's not how some of these wise people thought about it. It's as humans, and Thomas Aquinas said the same thing, Jesus on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, it's when people know better, they, they do better. Everyone wants to, to do well, even if, you know, and Thomas Aquinas talks about, even if people are doing evil, they are doing evil because based on a wrong perspective or judgment, they think this mm. evil is good in whatever particular way. So it is a lack of, of wisdom on, on their part. That even, even recently, Brene Brown in one of her books, you know, a few years back asked the question of, are people doing their very best? I think it was, um, maybe dare to lead or something like that. But in, long time on this question and no one knows there's no way to know are people doing their very best but she says i'm a better person when my answer is yes everyone is doing their very best even the person mm. you know it's like we don't know what is running in the background we don't know what type of thoughts people are you know, experiencing and, and trying to, to tackle and things like that. But I think that is such an important thing, especially when it comes to compassion or forgiveness. How can we even do these things if our views and beliefs are not somewhat aligned to be able to actually forgive and have compassion and, and things like that? Mm. Sorry for the long ramble there. Hey man, I've given you no shortage of long rambles. It's about time you took some <laughs> some airtime. Yeah, but 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 seriously, I think you're exactly right. Um, and I love this idea that she that she spins it around and says, "Well, maybe I don't really know if they know or not, but I'm better when I act as if that is true." And I'm very interested in those kinds of ideas where you, even a more fati, well. Should I act as if everything that comes to me could be good for my benefit, uh, love these things, approach them? With, well, I, I don't really know, but I have to try in order to see. And I, I think that this is also a key to the spiritual path or the philosophical path, which is that it's not something that can just be articulated intellectually and then you get it. You have to walk the path in faith, I would say, in a certain level of faith and goodwill, that perhaps if you had the experience, you would be brought into a completely different reality um, where things uh, now appear to be true, not because you've come up with some sort of series of logical arguments for their truth, but because you experience them. And now I'm going off on a long rant, but I have to say this. I was speaking to my cousin recently, and she uh, is just such a beautiful human being, uh, still a member of the church. And she said, 
she said, you know, when I was growing up, I had many, many problems with uh, what we were being taught at church. But I always looked at my parents and I could see by their example that they were living extremely rich, meaningful, good lives. Their example showed me that, 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 that there was a certain truth to what we're doing here. And I said, hell yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, it's like, because mm-hmm. what is more true than having the experience um, in life? And, and, and that's why I love that idea from Brene Brown of, of well, I'm better when I believe as, as though this is true. Or as Jordan Peterson would say, I don't, he doesn't say I believe in God. He says he acts as if God exists. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. that's probably good enough for a lot of people. Okay, I'm going to try that for a while, see what happens. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, man. The, the interesting thing is you need to make that decision, it seems like, in advance. It's a yes or a no. Like, if you think about Amor Fati, you can't uh, – it seems like it would be problematic – to on a case-by-case basis is this good or bad the good or bad is now now it's judgments and now it's desire do i want this do i not want this it's it's you have to and it connects with me you know you're a you're a real expert at least i i think of you as an expert on seneca and how much does he bang on about of Pick a rule to live by, you know, stop wandering aimlessly. There are so many things of walking a, a single path, if you will, a single rule to live by. Some of these things you have to decide, just like the Brene Brown question or as Socrates posed it, you have to decide whether that is a worldview or a perspective that you want to adopt as a rule to live by are Mm. people doing their best you know what what is it when someone essentially does you wrong is that some sort of malicious in intent type of thing or you know do are people inherently good and people want to to do good and do right by others but it's it's difficult it takes wisdom and wisdom Mm. is not um easy to come by at least that's my practice my thoughts it's like you have to kind of sit and decide but i think there's many of these perspective type of questions that are there that are are worth sitting down what is your stance on that if you think of marcus aurelius many of these meditations in there seem to be connected with some sort of perspective, some sort of worldview of change, of connection, this nature type of thing. There's there's an idea. He's connecting the dots. There's not so much in there about courage or, you know, these particular cardinal virtues. It's it's more of these ideas, at least to me, as perspectives on the world or human mm. nature. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, and I think it's about that practice over and over again, regardless of how many times you fail to live up to that decision that you've made, regardless of how many times I'm thinking of myself, you know, I, I know that uh, 
there are still interactions I have with people where I'm not coming from that perspective of people, you know, are good, seeking good things, um, but perhaps they don't know better. You know, I'm still coming from that. Well, I know better and, and you're just ignorant to this and you know, ah, I wish you would think another way. It's like approach that with love, nurture that person. If you've got some wisdom to share, like Marcus Aurelius would say, if I can't get this person to see better wisdom, that's my fault. That's on me. And perhaps to share a bit of wisdom from my Floridian friend again, um, he said to me yesterday, he said, here's something that I taught my daughter recently. He said, you know, here's a mantra for you. I decide, I decide, I decide. When, when you've got this destructive emotion coming into you because somebody did something that you didn't like, I decide what I'm going to feel today and how I'm going to act when you've got a tough decision to make and you're really struck, I decide. And whatever I decide, I have decided. Now, what he said is, we don't really know whether or not we do decide or not, but that's not important. Acting as if you could be the the point of that decision, as if you can decide, means that you're so much more powerful. And to believe that you can't decide only weakens you, which is exactly the same reason why... Uh, uh, Sam Harris in, in a debate said, yeah, I wouldn't teach my kids that they don't have free will. I'd wait till they're a little bit older. You know, it's like, <laughs> but that just, that just, it, it, it confuses me because it seems like this is the realm of the spiritual or the, the land of meaning versus the kind of very reductionist world of simple kind of facts and figures sort of thing. Because it might be true that we don't have free will. But the fact is that if you act as if you do, and if you treat people as if they do, things just generally go so much better for you. <laughs> like, like you, like, and you're so much more powerful. And so, does that not mean that that truth supersedes any kind of logical set of arguments? And it, do we want to be inhabit? Well, this is what Jordan Peterson says. Like by definition, if your philosophy of life is not sustainable and it leads you down a nihilistic path, it's wrong. <laughs> it's technically wrong. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I just I I love this idea of being okay with the mystery of life, but nonetheless finding our way to a philosophy of life that makes us stronger, wiser, better, more capable to take on the um, uh, the inevitable challenges uh, that lie ahead of all of us. So, yeah, this is... And I love talking to you about these things. It's um, Did, did you have any other, uh, like, parables that you want to get in, or...? Yeah, let me squeeze in one, one uh, another quick one here as we start to, to wrap it up. But I think this connects with what re- you were just talking about and maybe brings forward a, a bit of an obstacle and challenge that exists in life. And it's called uh, The Tale of the Two Wolves, uh, a popular parable. And it goes, a grandfather is talking with his grandson. The grandfather says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us, which are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness, bravery, and love. The other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed, hatred, and fear. The grandson stops and thinks about it for a second. Then he looks up at his grandfather and says, Grandfather, which one wins? 
The grandfather replies, the one you feed. In a shout out to the one you feed podcast, one of my favorite podcasts that are that are out there as well. The host, uh, Eric Zimmer, also came on the, the show a while back. But he asks every mm. guest that comes on, he basically opens with that parable. And uh, I've heard many people, you know, kind of talk about their their thoughts on it. But how about for you? Any thoughts that come up? Well, I, I just can't help but listen to that and then think back to that line from Mac Wilberg, as every man has two wills to be made one. And then you think of uh, the, the philosophy of uh, Carl Jung, this idea of the integration of the shadow. I wonder, um, is there a way to healthily feed both so that neither one goes too far. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, I mm. like, and I understand the, the, the metaphor of, okay, we'll feed the kindness, the love, you know, uh, the wisdom, that part of yourself. Absolutely. But what happens when the darkness gets starved, you know, that's, and this is, this is one of the reasons why, um, people like Jordan Peterson are saying, uh, Hey, these cathedrals, uh, these beautiful Template like we need to bring the Dionysian element back in here. Otherwise, that element of humanity is going to be starved, and they're going to leave the church as they are already doing on mass levels. And what you see when I've seen this in people, when a person has been so um, good for so long, and then they find out that perhaps the church that they belong to isn't all that it was cracked up to be and that you know they've repressed all of these things like they when they leave the church some of these people they it's like immediately they do the opposite of everything that they've ever done it's like let's leave behind all that good stuff i'm just going wild do you know what i mean and so mm-hmm. what gets repressed or not fed appropriately uh comes out in an unhealthy manner later so while i think that that parable yes has a real truth of we want to feed the better parts of ourselves i'm also interested in how do you bring both of those wills together harmoniously you know the dionysian and the christ-like sort of elements you know (laughs) absolutely it's tough it's tough (laughs) in in many of the guests that come on the show say something very very similar um of of not necessarily starving the the bad wolf if you will but an interesting thing for me, as as you mentioned maybe earlier in the conversation, this idea of of maybe shame and, and guilt and things like that that are part of the human experience or maybe this idea of an inner critic. I could see an idea in this traditionally how I think about it of of maybe these two voices that are coming towards us. There's this Vincent van Gogh quote. um, You know, if you hear a voice inside, you say you cannot paint, then by all means paint. And that voice will be silenced. I mean, we just get these inner voices that sometimes just don't necessarily say kind things to us. But even this idea of the bad wolf of maybe if you think about it, of these two inner voices, it's trying to help. There's these, I mean, there, there are things that 
we should be fearful of. There are things for our survival and things like that that mm. are helpful. Oftentimes, it's not necessarily necessary. You know, it's uh, thanks, thanks, bad wolf, but I think we'll think we'll be okay. And you know, fear may be part of part of the path, and it's why courage is a uh, is a virtue. But it, it's an interesting thing of, of navigating that inner inner critic. Does the inner critic type of stuff connect with you at all? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm, I think every artist connects with that because every artist has that inner critic that is always uh, there and ready to downplay any sort of little or big success that the artist has. Um and I often think of Marcus Aurelius there because he he talks about this. He says, I'm going to paraphrase here, but essentially the idea is every time you feel as though uh, you wish you had something else or that you're insufficient in some way, think back a few years and think to what you had then and then look ahead and say, is what I have now not would I not have coveted what I have now back then? Do you know what I mean? Like, like is, is what I have now not enough to be grateful for and, and to receive with, with grace, perhaps? And I think a lot of artists, including myself, um, probably a lot of philosophers, what, we have a really hard time recognizing the progress we have made and so we're all, it's like that inner critic. And this is why, like, I always go back to Seneca and Epictetus. We're doing the full Stoic rounds here. Seneca says, you know, the major problem is that we don't look back. And we don't actually look back to see how far we've come. Look at the progress you've made. But also Epictetus, he says, personal progress is made by two things. Self-scrutiny applied with kindness. We need the scrutiny, but you need it for like a second Oh, cool. Now I understand that that's a threat. Oh, cool. Now I understand that this is some part of myself that uh, needs to be brought into alignment, perhaps. But then you come back, you know, kindness. Okay. (laughs) You know, like, I understand that I'm going to make small progress over time. I can't jump 20 steps ahead. Um, And and be be kind to yourself as you scrutinize yourself. Because I'm telling you, like, most, most of the clients who I work with, they're really profoundly good at the self-scrutiny side of that. (laughs) But I would say the most profound changes I've seen in any of my clients have been when I've taught them how to be kind to themselves. And they come back to me within a week and they're like, oh my gosh, my week was so much easier. It's not as if I wasn't making progress. I made progress, but I wasn't beating myself up along the way. And I just think that that's beautiful and horrifying because humanity... Most people are like that, right? We just don't know how to be kind to ourselves, right? I absolutely love that. And maybe it's um, a transition to to next time we chat. But this idea oh, yeah. of progress, of is progress even a thing? Like Seneca talks about what progress have I made? I have begun to be a better friend to myself. You know, that is mm-hmm. the progress, but we're thinking about, and it's it's what we were kind of chatting, I, I think, about, like, initially in terms of these desires or any sort of want. What does that have to do with being a better friend to ourselves? 
that's not the progress when we often think of making progress or self-improvement or any sort of that. It, it just, I don't think we traditionally think about that. And I had a, mm. a guest on the show probably a month ago, you know, somebody that has, has been a monk and has, you know, spent thousands of hours was, um, Thomas Merton was actually his spiritual director and stuff like that. Mm. And it seems like some of these people that have really been down the path of a contemplative type of life, you know, they, they realize like this idea of progress is not going anywhere. You know, the purpose of life is to have no purpose is what this person said, which sounds a bit like crazy talk. And, and maybe next time we get together, we could chat more about that. But uh, Ooh, yeah. could you share say. with the listeners a little <laughs> bit about how to connect with you and, you know, what you're up to in the world? Sure. Um, well, yeah, thanks so much, Joshua. This is, yeah, it's always a pleasure. And uh, I am, I really do have you in my mind often because of the direction we're trying to take the walled garden. And I want to be collaborating with you a lot more, a lot more. Um, and we'll probably talk about that after this conversation. But um, if people want to find me and what, what I'm doing, um, what we are doing in the walled garden, just go to thewalledgarden.com. Uh, we're trying to build a, a community of people around the world who are interested in uh, seeking deeper wisdom, uh, revitalizing that philosophical dialectic tradition, which is what we're practicing today. It's like neither of us think that we know all the answers, but we're here with an open heart and hope, open mind, just speaking whatever comes to us. Um, and that's, that's where all the progress is made. Uh, if they want to get philosophical mentoring with me they can go to the same place the world garden there's there's some pages there where they can find that and book in a session and if they want to read my book it's been recently published it's called the poet and the sage uh a journey beyond the distant hills and uh if if your listeners enjoy the sacred texts and the the, the poetry and the the prose and the the parables even there's a very um uh very parable like structure to the, this book which i think that they'll find um uh refreshing if they sit with it i often recommend people sit with it by a, a by a stream or under a tree something like that and just <laughs> be there with it so that's that's where i'd send people to go yeah well i love it and i i highly recommend the the book and the walled garden we'll we'll link everything in the show notes um, well, Simon, it's, uh, it's a pleasure again to connect. Uh, I'm really appreciative of your time and hope to do it again in the future. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.